if we're interested in our inner world and growing down, then and it will highlight to us the more meaning and the purpose and our calling and how we're supposed to grow into this oak tree. But not everyone wants to be an oak tree. I'm Doug Bopes, personal trainer, best-selling author, and entrepreneur, and I'm on a mission to help others become the best version of themselves. So I'd like to welcome you to the Adversity Advantage podcast, where we will help you use obstacles, failures, and setbacks to give you that edge needed for success. I'll be interviewing people from all walks of life on how they overcame trials and turned them into triumphs. So please sit back, relax, and get ready to be absolutely blown away by some of the wisdom and stories you're about to hear. Welcome back to another episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobst, and today's guest is Dr. Elisa Hallerman. Dr. Hallerman is an addiction and trauma specialist. She's an attorney and the co-founder and CEO of the Recovery Management Agency and author of the book, Sobriety, A Plan to Heal Your Trauma, Overcome Addiction, and Reconnect with Your Soul. Today on the show, we discuss why reconnecting to your soul is necessary for recovering from addiction, why success and fame aren't the solution for your mental health struggles, how to transform your darkest moments into personal growth, why addiction needs to be taken seriously now more than ever, Elisa's riveting story of addiction and finding recovery, and so much more. So let's get this conversation going, and welcome Dr. Elisa Hallerman to the Adversity Advantage podcast. Elisa, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Doug. I'd love to to start with, I know one of the things that you talk about is how important it is to get reconnected to your soul, not just to get sober, but also to thrive in recovery. Talk about the importance of that. Yeah, definitely. I get asked this question a lot. People will say, how do you work with your clients and talk, start talking about soul right away? And I'm like, I don't, I can't say soul or soul sobriety right away when someone's trying to get sober, um, unless that's already part of their vernacular, right? But I think that for me, after I decided to be abstinent, and then I was sober, which for me meant a spiritual way of living. For me, it was the 12 steps. And that really gave me a design of how to show up, how to see my part, how to make amends and live as a sober woman. But something still felt like it was missing. And that was this deeper connection to myself and my meaning and my purpose in the world. And that didn't really come until I started to learn the difference between soul and spirit back when I was in um, in grad school. And then really putting that sort of soul-centered psychology in connection with addiction recovery and trauma recovery. And that's where I got to sobriety. So when somebody first gets into recovery, clean, sober, however they want to characterize that, um, there's so much chaos in their life. There's a lot of like blockage in their heart, in their soul, in their mind. Like if somebody's listening to this and let's just say that they're either thinking about getting into recovery, they're newly sober. What are some of the initial steps somebody can take to start to like break through some of those barriers that tend to block people from, um, connecting with their soul authentically? So I think in the very beginning, it's about, right, we have a slogan, everyone's heard it, one day at a time, right? right? Sometimes it's one minute at a time. We're just trying to not drink or use no matter what. So literally no matter what. So it's just about, just focus on that. That's it. But as you start to put days together, you're going to start to realize that the places that you go, maybe the friends that you have, the connections that you have, the things that you do at night, the things you consider quote unquote fun, no longer feel that way. You no longer feel really connected to this friend that you thought or this, you go out to a, a party or a club and it doesn't, you're like, how am I supposed to do this sober? And maybe it's because it's not fun anymore. And you start to have to re look at your lifestyle and look at who you are. For me, I had no idea at 33 years old when I got sober who I really was, what I liked to do, if I had any hobbies, how did I want to dress, 
you know, what nothing. Like I was a blank slate and I would go to meetings and I would hear people speak or I would take little nuggets from other people. I tell this story, but basically I'm newly sober. I'm driving in my car, like my old, whatever, kind of ratty car with a little bit of Coke dust probably in the seats. And I get to a stoplight and then all of a sudden another car and then the light changes and we proceed to pass each other. And in the other car, it's a black truck and it's a girl and she has the windows down and music blasting and blonde hair. And she's just totally emanating joy and happiness. And I'm like, I want that. So I literally, this is not what I'm suggesting everybody do, but this is just an example of how much I didn't know myself. I literally went home, dyed my hair blonde, blonde, and went out and bought a black Escalade. And it's little things like that. Like we're so at a loss for who we are. And that just takes time. And reconnecting with your soul and doing the methodology of sobriety, I think is a way where you can start to recognize your own uniqueness and your own specialness in the world and what you're here to do. I know a lot of what led to your addictive nature and path and stuff was your childhood and a lot of the trauma that you endured. I know one of the biggest events, I, I think, from just understanding your story is when you, you, move, you newly moved to L.A., you have this guy, Andy, mentor you at ICM, and then all of a sudden, he unfortunately commits suicide. Talk about how that event Im impacted you and then also like how your career in Hollywood and being around the rich and famous, like how that all, you know, exacerbated your addiction. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, trauma is subjective. Not two people can have the same experience and based on resilience, their personality, their DNA, they're going to experience it how they do. My childhood in a lot of ways was wonderful. There were little moments with my family that made me feel disconnected. I think I inherited the gene and thereby in my environment and the things that happened to me through epigenetics, I developed the disease of addiction. But in any case, I started to drink more alcoholically prior to moving to LA. And I don't know, maybe it would have just stayed like that with alcohol or heavy drinker or whatever. And then when Andy, as he's called in the book, committed suicide. I was 26 years old. I was suffering from PTSD. I was having symptoms of panic attacks and extreme OCD and anxiety and depression and crying hysterically and just completely not able to function. And you know, this was many, many, 30 years ago, no one was talking about trauma. No one was talking about PTSD. No one suggested I go to a therapist or a psychiatrist. And so I was left to manage all of these emotions and all of these feelings and all of this pain. So for me, when I found drugs, um, specifically for me, it was cocaine that gave me a release from that pain. And the alcohol combined with that and other drugs, it just gave me a way to dissociate and to escape from all of those feelings. And so it felt for a very long time, probably like eight years or so, my medicine. Like I needed that in order to survive. If you knew how, how I felt inside you too would search for something outside of yourself. It's only when those drugs and the alcohol or the behavioral addiction starts to kill you um, that you are forced to look for another solution. So, you know, I got sober early on in my career. I don't want anyone to think that I had this quote unquote success, external success 
you know, when I was still using, I was not, I was a young agent just starting out, really had no responsibilities and was figuring it all out. And that's when I got sober in 2002. And it was after that where I was more clear and paying attention. And I often would think sometimes when I was like alone or using, I wonder if I like applied myself what I could accomplish, you know? And I don't think I really recognized how intelligent or smart or how my brain at capacity could really work until I started, until I was sober. And that's when I started to have a lot of success. And that's when I had to change my lifestyle. And that's when I had to find sober friends to hang out with. And you know, I was very caught up in the glitz and glamour of Hollywood, even sober. And I think I just transferred and I talk about in the book, my addiction to ego and, you know, money and all of that prestige. And I became quote unquote, Lisa Hallerman. That was the mask I was wearing. And, you know, she was a bitch. She was successful and powerful and people were scared of her, but she wasn't nice. And at about five years, I started to realize that the way I saw myself inside was not matching up with the way that people saw me. And that's when I really wanted to make a change. So what types of conversations were you having with yourself like throughout those first five years of sobriety, like you said, where you felt still kind of disconnected? You felt like your ego had gotten in the way where you constantly thinking I'm not good enough? Were you constantly like, I need to, to fit in? Like, how did that all impact your, your, your whole overall outlook on yourself, your own self-worth, like, you know, while you were having this supposed success in Hollywood? I mean, great question. I think that I had a lot of insecurities and a lot of self-doubt, but I masked it from others and myself with the mask of this successful talent agent. So I led, I walked into a room with ego and I walked into a room with like this, a false sense of, you know, thinking I was fabulous or powerful and, you know, and that was met by, okay, well, as my clients started to become more successful, as I was gaining, you know, um, as they were gaining success, I was gaining success. And so you start to believe your own narrative. And that's when wearing a mask becomes a danger. We all put them on in different situations. We have to show up in different ways and that's healthy. When we start believing we're that and we've lost touch with who we are authentically, that's when it became a problem. For me, you know, I think it's such a great story. At the time, it was like, it was awful, but I was working at UTA at the time. I was running the talent department. I was a partner and we had these 360 reviews where a cross section of people at the agency would, you know, fill out a thing about you. And then you would sit with this guy and he would read you and you would see all of everybody's answers anonymously. And basically when he opened it, I was at a very raw and vulnerable time. A client of mine at that point had just tried to take their life. And so it was bringing up a lot of feelings for me. And when he opened the book, I could see that everything was written in black, but all of the negative stuff was written in red. And there was so much negative. And all the red stuff said ego, tone, condescending. And I was like, what? I have five years sober. Like, I don't see myself like that on the inside anymore. But that was how I was seen. And that was the moment of, I got to do some inner work. Uh, this isn't, this isn't, this isn't, this isn't matching up. Before we go into like the reinvention process of your story, Jamie Lee Curtis wrote the foreword to your book. She's been a, a strong advocate for recovery. Um, for, for years. And, um, and then you've also represented, you know, many A-list celebrities that, that people would know. And often you'll hear, you'll hear people say, how can somebody who has this much fame, this much money, like, 
Like, why do they destroy their lives? You've gotten to have a really unique perspective in that you've represented people in that world while also having your own battle with fame and money and ego, like you just described. Like, why do you think that despite all the notoriety and money, like, why do people destroy their lives at that point? I mean, addiction is not a choice, right? Maybe the first drink, maybe the first smoke is you're trying it out. You want to be social, peer pressure, whatever. But it creeps up as a problem. Like I was telling you eight years before it was super dark and me alone in hotel rooms. Before that, it was a lot of champagne, cocaine and parties, you know, and you know, it, nothing seemed quote unquote wrong with it. And, and then it turns and it turns because it's actually a brain disease and you don't know when that's going to happen. And then when it does, and you can't stop, you can't just have one line or one drink and you start to be able not to control it. Oh, I'm only going to drink on the weekends. Oh, I'm only going to drink after four. I'm only going to drink wine and beer and not hard alcohol. And we start to make these promises to ourselves that we cannot keep no matter how much we try. And that's because once we've ingested that substance or once we've began that addictive behavior, we are no longer in that front part of our brain, our prefrontal cortex. We are in the back part of our brain, our reptilian brain, which is saying, I need this thing, like I need air and water, and I will stop at nothing in order to keep getting it because we have given it such importance of dopamine in our brain that now our brain believes that this is needed for our survival. And so once that happens and you're in the back part of your brain, you're just going. It's why we drive intoxicated. It's why, you know, it's why pilots will will get on a plane intoxicated. It's why a doctor will do surgery intoxicated. And we're like, why? Why would this happen? You know, it's why some sort of celebrity might go on a talk show or embarrass themselves on a red carpet because they weren't in their right mind to go off of decisions or memories of what had happened in the past. So listen, I think that creative souls are more inclined to want to get in touch with that numinous side. Maybe that's a piece of it. Maybe it's the other way around where right? You have a certain type of person becomes an actor where it's all they can do. And they're used to putting on masks. They're used to doing that. That's comfortable for them. And, but at the end of the day, I don't think it's any, it's any worse in Hollywood than it is anywhere else in the world. I just think we hear about it more because of their celebrity. What was harder for you to break free from, like the addiction to the ego and the status and the money or the addiction to, to drugs and alcohol? Definitely drugs and alcohol. The rest of it took work, but I was present and conscious and mindful about wanting to make a change. For me, I just didn't know how to do it. People kept saying, do the inner work, do the inner work. And I was like, how do you get in? Like... Where's the key? What's the, you know, what's the password? Like, I, I don't even understand what you mean by that. Because that was not, I, I didn't grow up in that way where I could access that. So I was very confused by that. And I wanted to change, but I didn't know how. And I think that's probably why I had to start taking classes and doing something that was interesting to me in another way outside of being an agent to sort of spark that curiosity and spark that light and inside of me to want to learn more. So I was taking classes at UCLA while I was agenting. And, you know, it's a long story how I decided to do that. But basically, I knew I needed to change. I didn't know how. I made a list of all the things I ever wanted to do when I was a kid or B. And three of the things on the list were 
I wanted to be of service and help other women. I wanted to learn more about addiction and I wanted to be a emergency room doctor. And so I was like, all right, just an exercise. Like, let's just see what happens. And I came home from the trip and I started looking into, all right, well, can I take my MCATs? Like, what what do I have to do? And realized math and science were a big part of that, which was not my thing, which is why I became a lawyer. But I found these classes at UCLA about addiction medicine. And I thought, let's just start there. And then I started pulling threads of other things that were interesting to me. And then eventually going back to school to get my master's and doctorate. And that's where I started to learn so much more about soul work. So when it comes to addiction, I heard you mention that it's a disease of the brain. I know you also talk about how trauma plays a big part in that Gabor Mate, who we both know, believes that the root cause of addiction is trauma. Like, what is your your overall thesis? Do you think that it's trauma for everyone? Do you think people are just some or sometimes just innately born with that gene that they just need something? Like, what are your thoughts on that? I think it's both. I agree with Gabor, of course. I also think that just being an addict is traumatizing. So did the trauma come before? Did the trauma come during? You know, I think it's both. I do think 99% of the people that are addicts have trauma. Trauma is one of those words that we kind of throw around now, which is good because we're talking about it, but also a little bit mysterious because everyone's going to put their own meaning to it. So I think it's important to just acknowledge that there's an acute trauma, which is the one-time event, the assault or a war or an accident. And then there's chronic trauma, which is something that's ongoing and is happening slowly every single day, a little bit, a little bit, a little bit, bullying in school for a kid, a kid who's from divorced parents, back and forth, back and forth, whatever it is. And then more complex trauma, which really is a combination of both and really started in childhood. And Again, trauma is subjective to the person. Two people can be in the same. There's studies where it was a big car accident. Two people in the same car, the husband and wife saw the same atrocities. They saw, witnessed the same things. They experienced different things afterwards. The woman had PTSD. The man, after a certain amount of time, was okay. And the answer was because she had so much childhood trauma. And trauma, until you heal it, couples on top of each other. And so, yeah, definitely trauma is when something traumatic happens, immediately it's outside of our window of tolerance. It's something so extraordinary that we cannot process it in real time. It's not computing. Our brains can't make sense of it. Often something will happen that's traumatic and we feel like it's in slow motion and that's why. And so we're getting imprints of it, but our memories aren't laying down. It's why you'll hear people talk about bits and pieces and they can't remember. It's not integrating. And then what happens is your body will immediately send messages, danger, 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 and you will go into a state of fight or flight. And if you can't fight or flee, you will go into a state of freeze. But these are these are physical responses that we cannot control. And then the remnants of that are emotions and feelings that are stuck in our both our body on a visceral level and imprinted in our brain. Yeah, and I think the risk of of using drugs today is way different. Absolutely. I'd be dead. Right. Me too. Right. And I'm coming up on 15 years here. Oh, um, amazing. This weekend on Saturday. Congratulations. Thank you. And it's a big deal. Yeah, for sure. I'm super grateful to be alive. And and, and that said, I think the game has changed. Like over 100,000 people died last year of a drug overdose, many of them from fentanyl. And now it's like, you know, when I was growing up, people died from doing too much of something, or maybe they were mixing two things together. And purpose, you know, purposefully mixing two things together, and that caused something 
And now people are being poisoned. People who aren't even quote unquote addicts are dying because of, you know, fentanyl being in something. How has this changed like your, your approach when talking to families and talking to addicts about the current landscape that we're in, that it's not like that. Is there, is there more of like a, a sense of urgency when talking to families now? Definitely. You know, it's not just, there's definitely the fentanyl crisis. There's also the fact that weed is incredibly strong. The THC is now synthetically manufactured. And whether it's vaping or oils or edibles, it are incredibly strong. It's not like the weed we smoked. And so it causes psychosis in people that have an underlying mental health disorder that they maybe didn't know about. And some, and I have had more kids teenagers and young adults in the psychiatric ward than you could even imagine because of only weed. And it's just that, you know, there's this old expression of with addicts of like, oh, you got to let them hit bottom. They got to want it. And I say, yeah, that's not the case anymore. There's no hitting bottom. There's only tragedy. We can't afford to be complacent and no, we can't do it for them, but we can certainly raise their bottom up. You know, I always say like, get off at the fourth floor, like a, like a gentleman or, or a lady. You don't have to go to the sub-basement. There is no sub-basement anymore. It's only going to end quickly, faster. And it's devastating because, you know, I recently lost a, a former client of mine and when he stopped wanting to work with me, I knew, I knew based on the way that they used and their mentality and what was going on and their trauma, that it was a matter of time. And that's, that's devastating. And that loss hit so hard because knowing and not being able to do anything about it is, is a terrible, terrible feeling for families that I want no one to have to ever go through. So I try to be really upfront and very direct in a very loving and educational way. Where do people go wrong, you think, when they want to change, they want to get sober, they want to get into recovery, and then maybe they last a week, maybe they last a month, and then they're just back on the same path? Like, what do you think people can do, you know, differently to help prevent themselves from relapsing? Well, no one wants to change, right? No one. Change is like, oh, that's just, no, I'm not going to do that, <laughs> right? But I think that people decide to be abstinent because they're desperate, because there's consequences being held over them. And, you know, and one of those two things usually are at play. And if it's about consequences and it's not something that they really want to do and immediately they don't really learn about all the underlying things that are going on for them, then I think it makes it harder to stay clean. If you're experiencing underlying trauma, if you have an underlying mental health or mental illness if you have a lot uh, going on in your life, you're going through a divorce, the loss of someone, a breakup, anything at all, all of these things are going to be big social stressors in your life. So they're all going to add to this, like, I can't do it. And unless someone else gives you direction and medicine and starts to explain what's going on in your body and your brain and what trauma looks like, I think that's the biggest misconception that it's just like, oh, just stop. Stopping is easy. Staying stopped, that's the hard part. And I think we need to do a better job of educating not just the families, but also the person who's addicted so that they cannot feel shame about their behaviors. They're not living in this pile of, oh my God, look what I just did. 
and instead can start to focus on like, okay, this wasn't my fault. I had a brain disease. Here's what it looks like. It's not a moral failing. Here's what's happening in my body and my brain. And now I'm going to start to work towards healing. I think what happens sometimes, and I think you, you kind of alluded to this, is that I think people are in such a dark place when they get into recovery that the bar is is very low as far as what they want to be able to accomplish, right? And so the thought of getting sober or getting clean is just incredibly rewarding, which is it's, it is a big deal in that moment, hundred percent. But then that becomes like their baseline. They're like, well, I'm I'm at least not using drugs. I'm at least not using alcohol. Like life is good, and they don't end up like wanting to pursue anything else because they don't do the work to help improve their self worth, help improve their self confidence, help recover you know, from some of the, to help change some of the patterns that led to these addictions in the first place. I know you talk a lot about the importance of like clinging on to something like forward, you know, moving forward when you're in recovery and to kind of find meaning. Um, talk about why that's, that's crucial for people when they are trying to, to thrive in recovery. I think you have to have purpose. I mean, also like, let's be clear. I have 21 years sober. I had 10 years sober when I was, you know, 43 and left the entertainment business. And so it wasn't this overnight thing of I got sober and then, oh, look at her. She's so wise. No, no, no. Like there was none of that happening. It takes time. And some people want to transform from the inside out. Some people want to, as I always say, grow down. That is the way that I talk about sobriety and soul work. It's growing down into who you are and creating meaning out of your own personal experiences and therefore living in your purpose. Not everybody wants to do that. A lot of people are happy walking around day to day in their ordinary life. You know, I talk about in the book, the soul journey, the 12 steps of the soul journey. And the first step is being in your ordinary life and walking through it. And people will get sober and they'll get complacent. Everything's fine. But some people will hear those whispers. They'll hear, do I want to be in this relationship? Do I like my job? Should I live here anymore? A lot of people will then turn away from that. No, 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 no. Shush, 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 not ready. And they'll, they won't heed to the whispers of soul. But at some point, maybe a guide will appear. You'll listen to a podcast. You'll read a book. You'll meet someone. And you'll be like, huh, well, maybe I can do it. They did it. Or that makes sense. That's resonating with me. And then you'll take that leap of faith. And then, you know, you'll go from there. And so if you, for me, it was looking at this soul journey, knowing where I am on it, knowing that I'm going to go through more than one soul journey in my life, but also understanding that it will come around. It will come full circle if I'm paying attention, but making those leaps of faith, trusting, right? That takes time. It certainly does take time. And like I've said, I mean, I got... 15 years and I didn't just day one, like wake up with all this wisdom either. Right. I do think based on what we've said that there is more of a sense of urgency when you're in recovery to make sure you're doing everything you possibly can to not relapse because of the dangers that exist now compared to, you know, years ago that didn't with, with fentanyl and, and everything else that if somebody wants to go out and just says, you know what, I'm, I'm not happy in recovery. I'm going to go out and try something. And then heaven forbid they you know something happens and they they overdose the stakes are really really high now we used to call it like oh i just need to go out and do a little bit more research like that is can be very fatal these days however i do think that flips and relapses are a part of recovery and that it's not about what happened it's about the next day shining a light on something that's been missing in your recovery and really taking a look at it of like, well, why did this happen? And what else do I need to add or take away in order to not have this happen again? I, you know, we count days in the rooms, but 
the wisdom that you learn every day and the resilience that you build every day that you're sober does not go away because you had a slip or a relapse. It's about knowing that you have to just get back in the very next day and come clean with yourself. Maybe you're not ready to come clean with everybody else, but come clean with yourself and look at maybe what needs to change in this in this particular juncture of where you are in your life. So do you think that like most people that you've seen or that you've talked to, or even in your own experience that, you know, they call them what dry drunks, right? That's like the term where they're, they're sober, they're in recovery, but they're still doing the same types of patterns are still not happy with themselves. Do you think the main culprit is like still the disconnection to self or do you think it's something else? I think that what, I learned and when I was doing my dissertation research was I started to look at addiction as an existential crisis of meaning. And when I started to look at addiction through that lens, that's when I started to realize, okay, this is what's happening for me. Here I am in my 40s and I'm talking about leaving a career of 15 years that I built you know, a paycheck, insurance, a place to go, all of it, my friend group, my social life, and start taking classes in depth psychology up in Santa Barbara, in this little cohort, in this classroom, sitting on the floor on some like mat or, you know, little chair with my computer in school. (laughs) And you know, at 46, 40, you're like, what, 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 am I doing the right thing? Like, what the hell am I doing? But I so was yearning for what am I doing here? And is this enough? And when that voice becomes louder than the one where it's just like, okay, let's just keep going through the moments. I mean, for me, it's like you start walking, you're living your life and then sure, it was really scary to leave, but little things were happening that felt like brick walls of like, you're not, you know, oh, you need to go left. And it's like, no, I want to go right. I want to go right. And then there's little aha moments along, along the way, right? I think that I talk about getting fired by Vince, one of my big clients. And obviously it was very It was painful leading up to it, knowing that it was going to happen. But when it did happen, there was an enormous sense of relief. And then there was an enormous amount of space in my day, in my soul, in my head that opened up to allow me to start fantasizing and looking at, well, maybe there's something else. How does somebody like find meaning? in their life. And as we've, you know, we're talking about soul and getting connected to the soul. I know we talked about it at the beginning, but let's just say somebody is on, you know, a quote unquote healthy path of recovery. And they're like super motivated. They're doing the work, going to therapy, but they're like, you know what? I'm listening to this podcast. I want to figure out like, where do I go from here? Where does, where does somebody start? For me, I talk about the unconscious, the unconscious, whether it's the personal unconscious or the collective unconscious is the part of us that's going to, unless we try to understand it, unless we try to understand our complexes, not get rid of them, but understand our triggers, understand our complexes, understand these archetypes that keep showing up in our life. When we start to get curious about our unconscious, then we can start to learn more about who we really are. There's James Hillman talks about the acorn theory in his book, the soul code. And essentially what he says is soul is like an acorn. Basically the acorn knows without any instruction or any help whatsoever that it is going to grow into this great big oak tree, right? It's quite amazing. If you think about it from the acorn to the oak tree, And the soul is no different, that if we tap into our inner world, if we look look at it in that way, where 
we're curious about psyche, we're curious about the imaginal, we're curious about our triggers. And there's lots of ways to go about that. And I, I talk about different things, you know, personification and the imaginal and things like that in the book. But if we're interested in our inner world and growing down, then that will become more obvious to us and it will highlight to us the more meaning and the purpose and our calling and how we're supposed to grow into this oak tree. But not everyone wants to be an oak tree. But for the people that that do. Yeah, I'd say start practicing soul variety. And so what are the, like other than just getting connected with the subconscious and unconscious mind collective, what are some of the like first steps somebody can do? Is this the next book? Huh? Is this the next book? It could be, right? <laughs> yeah. A lot of people ask it. You know, to me, sobriety was a lifestyle and a methodology and not really a step-by-step process because it's so circular and soul does not speak in words and everyone has their own definition. And when you talk about soul, you talk about story and mythology and poetry and images and symbols. So it's an individualized process. I think my biggest piece of advice is to expand your life a little bit, to get curious about things that are interesting to you. Pick up a book, listen to a podcast, And then, you know, I always say pull the thread. So if someone's listening to this podcast and they want to learn a little bit more, maybe head to my website, pick up the book, pick up a James Hillman book, pick up a Thomas More book, pick up something that has reference to depth psychology if you want to learn more and start to understand the language of soul. And then you'll be able to practice caring for your soul understanding what it's like to live in the dark night of the soul. I think people associate that with depression, but the darkness, we need to have the darkness as a place to pause so that we can alchemize that pain into purpose. And I think that's the thing that people miss. Like we we live in a culture of just wanting to feel better and wanting to feel better fast and instant gratification. And for me, it meant learning to sit in the sorrow, you know, in the grief, in the pain, which is something over the last few weeks I've had personally, and then just watching the world and the collective grief and the collective trauma and the collective pain. And it's, 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 you have to have that in order to be able to also enjoy the light and also find the joy. But you have to be able to exist in both worlds. It's not an even or. It's a both and. Yeah, it's tough, right? Because there's like, I think, two extremes that exist. It's like the people that don't want to face pain at all and they want to push it away. Or it's the people that are like, in order to grow, I need to continue to put myself in like hard situations and they become obsessive about that as well, right? How did you effectively like manage darkness to where you could just sit in it enough to know that you were going to learn or you were trying to figure out what was going on, but then like you knew to take action versus just, you know, fall, falling into one of the extremes where you're just either sitting there way too long or you're just pushing it away and, and, and not going there. So two of the things that I do, one is... I learned this method of personification. So very early on in recovery, I was told, yeah, you're abstinent, but you're still going to think like an addict. And I was like, that's so unnecessary. Is there something I could do about that? You know, like I gave it up. Like, why can't I go back to normal? And so I named my disease very early on in recovery and I called her Trixie. And to me, it felt like, okay, Trixie did all those shenanigans and slept with all those people and did all those bad things. And that was, that was her. 
But Elisa, and that's why I went back to my original name, because everyone called me Lisa in Hollywood, Lisa Hallerman. And then I was like, yeah, I want to go back to Elisa, which is my given name. Everyone, of course, acted like I changed my name to Rainbow or something crazy, but I just actually just went back to Elisa. And I was like, who is Elisa? Right? So that became my project. And, and that is how we existed. And a lot of times, Trixie, her behavior, her manipulation, her wanting to go and do something crazy. And, you know, I'd have to stop her and say, hey, 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 that's not like, oh, thanks for sharing, but we're, we're, that's not sober behavior. We're not going to do that. And that was my relationship with her. And it was when I got to grad school and started learning about personification, which is actually taking the image, taking Trixie, and really personifying her, make, giving her personality, giving her a backstory, giving her her own set of ideals, and really letting her develop. And so that became a practice of no longer shushing Trixie away because she was a bad thing, but really listening to what she had to say. You know, maybe I wasn't going to act in the way that she would act, but normally if she was coming in in a way of like, we're going to do this now, we're going to be manipulative, we're going to do it, it's because she knew something that I wasn't ready to hear. And so it became more of a dialogue and more sharing. And I have others that I personified. And so it became about sitting down and listening and having, going into a meditation and really dialoguing with these other personas and really understanding them. So that's one way. The other thing that I do is when I experienced trauma in sobriety, I went through a really bad breakup and it felt like someone killed me, stabbed me. I was bleeding out and all the pieces of myself and my inner workings were in this huge pile on the floor. And just looking at it felt like unimaginable that I would be able to put these pieces back together. I was immobile. I couldn't move. I couldn't ask for what I needed because I didn't know what I needed. I couldn't eat. I couldn't sleep. All those things that you hear about when someone's traumatized or grieving. And But I knew. I knew it was trauma. I knew that's what was happening. And I knew I needed to do something about it. So I created this imaginal space of my inner cave and I couldn't afford to be walking in that kind of pain all day, but I also knew it was going to take a very long time to get over. So both had to happen. So I would go about my normal day and then on my time, I would go into my cave and in the cave, I would pick up piece by piece and I would sit there with it. And I would journal about it, or I would draw it, or I would write a story about it, or whatever it was. And I would start to alchemize. And slowly but surely, I would start to heal. And so there's these different methods that I talked about in the beginning of not knowing how to go in that I then started to learn how to do. And that really changed who I was because I was healing from the inside out and I was growing down. You talked about how you have all this wisdom now. Just I through. did not say I have all this wisdom well, now. Well you, did. well, you talk about, you talked about how you shared like all this, this wisdom from, you know, right. being sober for 21 years uh -huh. and also that. Is that my ego? I mean, could have been, yeah. I don't know. Your it's competitive nature, I think. Totally. Right? I yeah. don't know. Um, you did talk about in the book. When you, how, when you repeat it back to me, it sounds ego. No, I think, listen, I, but think, I do have some wisdom. I, for listen, sure. I think given what you've accomplished, and I think anybody who's been able to be to remain sober that long and thrive, I think you do gain wisdom, right? And then you also have said that like at the beginning, it was, it was very rocky, very challenging, but now you're in a much deeper place outside of what you shared about, um, you know, just the loss that you've experienced in the last few weeks and, and everything that's going on overseas. Like take all that away. Like, what do you still struggle with? Well, how can we take all that away? That's well, I'm, life, but right? I'm saying, but I'm saying like out, that outside That is of what I struggle with is life on life's terms. Mm. You know, I want to check out. 
I want to stay in my pajamas in my bed and, you know, watch Netflix. I wanted to cancel, you know, the podcast. I'm grieving the loss of a family member. I'm grieving the atrocities and the horror that we're seeing in the world. I'm living in a collective fear of being Jewish and what that's like. And, you know, I want to check out and I want to not feel it, but I need to practice feeling it and not dissociating from it. I felt like this was my first week really back at work. And every Monday night, I have a group of ladies and we we meet for an hour and it's not a 12-step meeting. It's a sobriety meeting. And we usually read something from Mark Nepo, who writes a lot about soul and we share on the topic and we share whatever it is that we're feeling. And so I did that last night and I was still contemplating. Am I canceling this? What am I doing? Can I even speak intelligently? Can I not cry? I don't know how it's going to go. Tons of wisdom though. Okay. Thanks. And I shared last night and I got to cry, really cry, really grieve and really be seen by these ladies. And that made me feel a lot. That made me feel lighter, not better, but maybe lighter. And I knew that I could show up today. I knew that a little piece of me had been released, that I had worked through a lot of stuff in that hour and a half on that call. And I think it's really important to have those spaces. And it's interesting because I have a lot, a lot of friends and ego. Um, And no, I do. I have a lot of friends. And um, I mean, I also know a lot of people but I wouldn't. I mean, Jamie Lee Curtis wrote the forward to your book. It's okay. You can, I'm joking. Yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. Joking. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I can't have those conversations with just anyone, right? And so you also need people in your life that you can go deep with, that you can be vulnerable with. You need to pick and choose those carefully. Who can hear and go with you and walk by your side and just sit with you in the darkness? I think that's really important. That's, you asked me what I'm working on. That's what I'm working on. I'm working on maybe disengaging from those people that I don't feel authentic relationships to, that I feel are not showing up in a way that I would show up or are more transactional relationships and really trying to have deeper, vulnerable relationships. I know you're a big fan of like the hero's journey, right? And um, I had Dr. Edith Eager on the podcast. Are you familiar with her? Mm-hmm. And and she said something like, you know, when she was, she was in Auschwitz and her parents, her family was taken from her and unfortunately were killed. And I think she said something to the effect, her mom said like, whatever happens, they can't take what's going on in your mind. So do you, do you believe that um, concept can truly help a lot of people that are struggling when they have all this external things that are coming at them left and right, whether it's the news, whether it's what's going on in the Middle East, whether it's relationships that they, the concept of controlling what is in between your left and right ear is like, is like the thing that matters the most in, in hard situations. I mean, this is all I've been talking about lately, right? With my family and friends. So yes, I mean, Victor Frankl wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning and that's exactly what he talks about. You know, here he was a psychologist um, during the Holocaust and wrote about those that were able to survive also needed to stay internal, be singing in their minds or humming or being of service to others, whether they were giving them a slice of bread or something. And the past week, it's really, really been focused on that because the grief and the despair and the fear is so collective and so deep 
that you don't know what to do and you want to do something, but you feel powerless. And so for me, it was as simple as for the first time, I was going to light Shabbat candles on Friday night and say a prayer and and sit down and have dinner with family. And that felt like exactly what we're talking about, creating meaning, you know, shedding light, even if it's just some new way of being and showing up in the world. And I'm just looking to do more of that. I'm just looking to do more of that in in ways that I can. One of the other crises that it exists now that we've touched on is this um, horrific drug epidemic that we're in. And as we were bringing things to a close, I'd love to know your thoughts. Like if if there's parents that are listening to this, which I know that there are, and they have a kid or a loved one that that's struggling, like what what have you found to be helpful? Whether it's types of conversations to have resources, like, like where can people turn? So I think that if you're in the mentality of not my kid, you need to throw that out. And if you think something's wrong or you're sensing something's wrong, or you're listening to this podcast because you want to learn something, then something's probably wrong. Are we at, you know, a level 10 yet? No. So Early intervention is the best possible thing. If your child is suffering in school, you know, looking for signs of addiction or mental illness or mental health concerns like anxiety or depression in adolescents is different than in an adult, right? With adolescents, it's going to look like they start to do poorly in school. They change their friends really quickly. They are kind of more agitated or irritable than maybe they normally are. They're not sleeping. They're not eating. Their eating habits have changed. And they're hyper-focused on maybe, you know, just one thing. We saw a lot of this during the pandemic, social media, social media, social media. And, you know, they're not interested in sports or their afternoon activities or those sorts of things. Those are all signs for an adolescent that something is wrong, that either they are in, you know, suffering from addiction or they are suffering from mental health issues. Then the second thing I would say is you want to go to someone who is educated on the topic that can really explain to you and also figure out what is going on. Going to your dentist and saying, hey, where'd you send your kid to therapy is not necessarily the best way to go about it. And that's what we tend to do. It's like we just Google or we ask our friend or, oh, my neighbor's kid did this. And so I'll just go that route. And with the best of intentions, and I did that for so, so long with my own family members because you don't know what you don't know. But you know, and that's one of the reasons I created Recovery Management Agency was so that we could consult and really direct people to experts. So you want to go to a psychiatrist because that is the kind of doctor, not a pediatrician, that deals with issues of the mind. And you want to go to a psychiatrist maybe that understands and practices addiction medicine, which is a specialty like cardiology. And you want to go to a therapist that has practiced and studied different trauma modalities. And these are all questions that you can walk in and ask. But you really want to go to, it's not just every therapist is going to know or every doctor is going to know. You want to make sure that you're going experts. Like we're living in 2023 and there are a lot of experts now that there didn't used to be but it takes continuing education and not everybody is willing to do that. And that's okay, but make sure you find the right people. Yeah. And also make sure that you take care of yourself too, right. And find a good community around you, find a support Definitely. group, whether it's Al-Anon, whether it's Codependence Anonymous, whether it's something online. I mean, I just think it's so important to just like for people who are in the midst of addiction to find support and community. I think, you know, parents are, it's, it's even more important. 
Definitely. I mean, you know, a lot of times by the time someone comes to me, they're in crisis. And so we really are looking to put the safety of the person struggling the most first. It's not like I could say to a mom, well, you really need to put your own oxygen mask on first. Like, no, she's like, get my kid or, you know, get my husband or get my wife into. And so that's the first order of business. But once that person is safe and has the treatment team around them that they need, then it's essential that everybody get in their own lane and start working on themselves. Incredible. Well, Elisa, this has been awesome. Thank you so much Thank for coming you. on. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Of course. So if people want to buy the book, they want to learn more about your work and what you're doing, uh, where do they do that? I think you can buy the book pretty much anywhere books are sold. Amazon, Target, Walmart. God forbid you go into a bookstore. I think it's there too. <laughs> um, and me, you can find on Dr. Elisa Hallerman on Instagram or my website, which is drhallerman.com. Awesome. I'll be sure to include the links to that stuff in the show notes. Thank and you. Uh, thanks again for coming on. Thank you.